Hello and welcome to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice, dedicated to bringing stories from the past back to life. I hope you're enjoying the festive season so far. And if you enjoy this show, don't forget to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help. Now, let's get started with our story. For this particular episode, I put a request out on social media asking for any local Christmas traditions that I might not have heard of. And this one came in from Mark Vinat of the History of North America podcast. This is what he had to say. Hi. This is Mark Vinette from the History of North America podcast, where I explore the wonderful and tragic stories of North America's inhabitants, heroes, villains, leaders, environment, and geography at markvinette.com. There is an unusual festive tradition in Canada. Each year, we Canadians send the biggest, best fir tree grown in Nova Scotia to Boston, Massachusetts, because of the assistance given during the World War I disaster known as the 1917 Halifax Explosion. This tradition has carried on for many years. Placed in the Common, the oldest city park in the United States, the Boston Christmas tree is lit throughout the holiday season. Merry Christmas to you, Alice, your audience, and your talented Backtracker team. I look forward to your wonderful shows in the new year. This show's event happened in the year 1917. And as always, let's find out what else happened that year. Well, on January the 11th, unknown saboteurs set off the Kingsland explosion at Kingsland, which is now modern-day Lyndhurst, New Jersey, one of the events leading to the United States' involvement in World War I. On January the 26th, the sea defences at the English village of Halsland are breached, leading to all but one of the houses becoming uninhabitable. On March the 15th, Empress Nicholas II of Russia abdicates his throne and his son's claims. This is considered to be the end of the Russian Empire, after 196 years. On April the 17th, the Times and the Daily Mail, London newspapers both owned by Lord Northcliffe, print atrocity propaganda of the supposed existence of a German corpse factory processing dead soldiers' bodies. On June the 13th, the first major German bombing raid on London by fixed-wing aircraft leaves 162 dead and 432 injured. On July the 17th, King George V of the United Kingdom issues a proclamation stating that henceforth the male line descendants of the British royal family will bear the surname Windsor. On November the 6th, after three months of fierce fighting, Canadian forces take Passchendaele in Belgium. The battle concludes on November the 10th. And lastly, on December the 3rd, after nearly 20 years of planning and construction, the Quebec Bridge opens to traffic. The bridge partially collapsed on August 29th, 1907, and again on September the 11th, 1916. 
But our event occurred on the morning of the 6th of December, 1917, in the Canadian town of Halifax. Word of the Week And for this festive season, the word I give you is... Ramracketing, which is a verb to mean to run and leap around. And it perfectly describes that moment on Christmas morning when the kids get up and they run around like banshees, screeching and laughing, and it's just a wonderful time. At about 8 o'clock on the bright, clear morning of December the 6th, 1917, the Norwegian ship SS Emo left its mooring in Bedford Basin at Halifax, heading for the open sea and eventually New York. At the same time, the French ship SS Montblanc, carrying 2,300 tonnes of wet and dry picric acid, 200 tonnes of TNT, 10 tonnes of gun cotton, and 35 tonnes of highly explosive benzoyl, headed into the harbour to await the convoy that would escort her to Europe and the First World War. The two ships collided, setting off a fire aboard the Mont Blanc, whose crew immediately took to the lifeboats, crying out warnings as they rowed furiously towards Dartmouth. Their ship, meanwhile, drifting towards Halifax, brushed along Pier 6 and set it on fire. Numerous onlookers came to the harbour to watch. Many more looked on from windows of their workplaces and homes. At 9.04am, about 20 minutes after the collision, the Mont Blanc exploded. An estimated 1,650 people died instantly but the death toll eventually climbed to more than 2,000. 9,000 were injured and 6,000 were left homeless in what was the largest man-made explosion until the nuclear age. 1,000 people suffered eye injuries from shattered windows and other flying debris, and more than 1,600 buildings and seven ships were destroyed. 12,000 buildings were damaged. Almost all of the north end of Halifax was destroyed, and what wasn't immediately levelled was burned to the ground as buildings, many loaded with coal for the winter, were raised. The Montblanc was torn into pieces. The bowel of one of her cannons landed five kilometres away. Part of her anchor went three kilometres in the opposite direction. Windows shattered into row, a hundred kilometres away, and the shockwave was felt in Sydney, 400 kilometres away. And to make things worse, relief efforts were hampered by a blizzard that dropped 40 centimetres of snow the following day. Within two months, 1,500 victims had been buried, some unidentified. Others were only discovered the following spring. 
The explosion marked the first time that the Canadian Red Cross and the Salvation Army of Canada were involved in disaster relief. It also helped spark the formation of the CNIB, or the Canadian National Institute for the Blind, a non-profit organisation founded in 1918 to change what it is to be blind today. <laughs> Word on the street. Did you know that Royal Mail staff found that the UK has 3,369 Christmas-themed street names, with the top one being Holly Street, where there is 990 of those. The Midlands comes top with the most number of Christmas-themed names, at 560. And the weird thing about living on a street with a Christmas-themed name is that you may find your property value is boosted. Boiler price comparison website heatingforce.co.uk compiled a list of festive street names to find out what impact they had on the property's worth. On top of the list of words that could increase a house's value is the word toy. And with homeowners who live on those streets, you could see your house price increase by 272000 £249, compared to the UK average. The second highest value came in on streets with the word tinsel, and the third was frosty. The Halifax explosion resulted in the adoption of much stricter regulations in connection with the manufacture and transport of explosives throughout Great Britain. An announcement was made that the severest penalties will be enforced in case of violation of the regulations. Two days after the Halifax explosion, five men were brought into court at Nottingham in the UK charged with breaches of the safety regulations in munitions factories here. Several government officials were sent to be present at the proceedings and warn offenders that they would be dealt with more severely than before. The number of people employed at the largest works in this area was equal to the entire population of Halifax at the time. The destruction at Halifax could have been more severe in fact, it could have been completely destroyed, with possibly the loss of 20,000 lives. A short while before, the ship the Picton, while on a voyage with munitions from an American port to Great Britain, lost her rudder at Halifax in a storm. She was towed there for repairs, and once completed, she was moored off the Acadia Sugar Refinery, about a mile straight across from the heart of the city, waiting for the order to proceed to sea. Unfortunately, the Picton caught fire following the explosion in the Mont Blanc and at the same time was lying in position much nearer the heart of the port than the Mont Blanc. The credit for extinguishing the flames on that ship and positioning her in a place where if she had exploded, she would have done little harm is given to Captain James W. Harrison, who had been a British skipper and was then a Marine Superintendent of the Furnies Withy Line in Halifax 
The skipper of the ship and the members of his crew were watching the fire on the Mont Blanc and were nearly all killed when the explosion occurred. Those who were lucky to survive realised that their cargo had now become a major hazard. Captain Harrison single-handedly steered the ship as far away as possible from the city of Halifax. He then cut the ropes so that she drifted away on the tide whilst he fitted a hose and tried to put out the flames. Luckily they were in an area that was easy to get to and he managed to keep them away from the deadly cargo of munitions. The first estimate was that 500 men, women and children had become totally or partially blinded as a result of the disaster, with at least 200 being totally blind, a majority of them young women and children. At the time, Sir Frederick Fraser, chairman of the Halifax Blind Relief Committee, estimated that a fund of at least $500,000 would be required to provide accommodation and suitable training for those who were so suddenly blinded. One such victim was John Eric Davidson, who was two years old when he was blinded by the Halifax explosion. At the time of the accident, Davidson was in his family's living room with his mother and sister. He was playing with his toy train on the windowsill. The family was alerted to the collision by smoke rising from the harbour. Davidson was facing the glass windows when the blast occurred. The force of the explosion shattered the glass, completely blinding him. Davidson and his family were moved to Halifax Commons, a makeshift camp set up for survivors of the explosion. He went on to attend Halifax School for the Blind, where he studied music, but his ambition was to become an auto mechanic, as he had loved cars all his life. His brothers would read him auto repair manuals, and he would practice on old cars in his family's back garden, using his sense of touch and memory. He later took on an apprenticeship with a car dealership in Halifax and earned his auto mechanics license. Another survivor was Doug Snare who was only 18 months old at the time of the explosion. He's been told many times throughout his life what happened that fateful morning. He was at home in Lewisburg Street, watching his mother Mabel bathe his younger sister Marion, who was only one month old, when at 9.04am the windows of the room shattered, blowing shards of glass into the house. His mother's back was embedded with glass and Marion was struck in the face, damaging her eyes. She would eventually lose her eyesight by the age of 16. Marion also caught pneumonia from the cold and spent time in hospital. Doug was struck by glass on the left side of his face but with no permanent damage. Doug and his family were initially tended to by his aunt Ethel, aged 18, who was living with them at the time. She was in an undamaged area of the house and took the young family to the local YMCA. As the house was so badly damaged, it was uninhabitable. They stayed there for two days before catching a train to her parents in Black Point, 40 kilometres away, where they stayed for four years. 
Doug's father, Walter, was a telegraph operator who had a dental appointment that morning. This saved his life, otherwise he would have been in the office with fellow telegrapher Vincent Cole. It was Vincent who saw the explosives laden Mont Blanc drifting into the harbour, and knowing that to stay would mean death, he continued to tap out a final warning to an arriving train, saving many lives. Another survivor was Sadie Graham, whose maiden name was Muse. She was five years old and living on the southern end of Lower Water Street in Halifax. Although that area escaped major damage, the windows of her home did blow in when the Mont Blanc's deadly cargo exploded. She was lucky. Celia Coolan was just ten days old when the explosion happened, and her family said it was a miracle she survived at all, and by her story, the one she likes to tell, the family says Cooleen was saved by the cradle she was in. She was in a wooden cradle, and the explosion tipped the cradle over and blew it across the room, said Jim Power, Cooleen's nephew. The cradle basically protected her, and if it wasn't for the cradle, she wouldn't have lived the life she did. Both parents were killed from the Great Explosion, and Cooleen was adopted. Cooleen was present for the 100th anniversary of the Halifax Explosion, and she nearly lived to see the 102nd, but in another twist of fate, she would die on December the 1st, the same day as her husband Cecil died, 32 years before. Every year, Nova Scotia sends the city of Boston a Christmas tree to thank them for the help they provided after the Halifax explosion. After hearing about the explosion, the next day in the newspaper, Boston Mayor James Michael Curley and Massachusetts Governor Samuel McCall immediately took action. The two organised a committee to help raise funds and provide aid, with $100,000 being raised after people saw ads for relief in the Boston Globe. Roughly 12 hours after the explosion, a train for Halifax left Boston, carrying medical personnel, beds and other supplies, to help treat the physically injured survivors and the demoralised Halifax community. Travelling through heavy snowstorm, the train arrived on December the 8th. A second train then arrived December the 9th, and the people of Halifax received some much-needed help. Their arrival signified hope for everyone who had gone through such a traumatic experience. In all, Massachusetts helped raise more than $750,000 in relief aid for the Halifax community. The grateful people delivered Boston a Christmas tree the next year. The gift was repeated in 1971 and then every year since. Now called the Tree for Boston, it considers contenders from across Nova Scotia. The organizers looked for a tree that's about 45 to 50 feet tall, and they also keep a list of about 15 trees on hand. The trees are nominated by the public as well as landowners, volunteering their own, and the trees have become a bond between the two communities that neither distance nor time has changed. Each year, as the tree makes a long trip from Nova Scotia to Boston, local residents line the truck's route with the send-off parades. The journey persists through winter storms, city traffic, and even the COVID-19 pandemic. 
The History of North America podcast is a sweeping historical saga of the United States, Canada, and Mexico from their deep origins to our present epoch. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this exciting, fascinating, epic journey through time, focusing on the compelling, wonderful, and tragic stories of North America's inhabitants, heroes, villains, leaders, environment, and geography. This incredible historical adventure follows a path of exciting events led by interesting people who reach beyond their grasp to touch key moments in time. The History of North America podcast series is an educational and entertaining look at the thrilling chronicle of North America, an action-packed tale of a continent that is still unfolding. I invite you to come along for the ride. Back in the day facts. Righto, let's start with the 17th of December 1903, when the Wright brothers make the first controlled, powered, heavier-than-air flight in the Wright Flyer at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. We now have roughly 100,000 flights take off and land every day all over the globe. Also, on the 17th of December, but in 1964, Goldfinger, the third James Bond film, starring Sean Connery and Honor Blackman, premieres in London. On the 18th of December, 1972, President Richard Nixon announces that the United States will engage North Vietnam in Operation Linebacker 2, a series of Christmas bombings, after peace talks collapsed with North Vietnam on the 13th of December. On the 19th of December in 1900, French Parliament votes amnesty for all involved in scandalous army treason trial known as the Dreyfus Affair. The scandal began in December 1894 when Captain Alfred Dreyfus was convicted of treason. Captain Dreyfus was a 35-year-old Alsatian French artillery officer of Jewish descent. He was falsely convicted and sentenced to life imprisonment for communicating French military secrets to the German embassy in Paris and was imprisoned on Devil's Island in French Guiana, where he spent nearly five years. In 1896, evidence came to light, primarily through an investigation made by Georges Picard, head of counter-espionage, which identified the real culprit as a French army major named Ferdinand Walsin Esterhazy. In 1899, Dreyfus was returned to France for another trial. The intense political and judicial scandal that ensued divided French society. The new trial resulted in another conviction and a 10-year sentence, but Dreyfus was pardoned and released. In 1906, Dreyfus was exonerated and reinstated as a major in the French army. He served during the whole of World War I, ending his service with the rank of lieutenant colonel. He died in 1935. On the 20th of December 1955, Cardiff is proclaimed the capital city of Wales in the United Kingdom. 
On the 21st of December 1913, Arthur Wynne's Word Cross, the first crossword puzzle, is published in the New York World. And lastly, on the 22nd of December 1885, Ito Hirobumi, a samurai, becomes the first Prime Minister of Japan. Well, I'm afraid that means it's it for today's show. Anyway, don't worry, I'll be here same time, same place next week. And once again, a huge thank you to Mark Vinette for making that suggestion. It's a very intriguing story, and it's led to a beautiful Christmas tradition. I'd also like to thank Sam Roberts for lending her voice and bringing the story to life. Thank you, one and all. Thank you once again for listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. So do come along and find me because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. given exclusively with the Backtracker History Show, Santa has revealed that his favourite subject at school was chemist tree. (laughs) 